Obviously, we continue on in 1 Peter, uh, working through this. We're looking at the effects of redemption. And as I'll mention, even throughout the sermon, uh, we're still talking about our great salvation. Uh, Now, the question of long-term effects uh, seems to be asked a lot nowadays. Uh, What is the long-term effects of a virus? What is the long-term effects of taking a vaccine? What are the long-term effects of these societal and school changes? Uh, do, what do they do to our kids, or, or what does it do to learning? And the list goes on and on. What are the long-term effects? Because we tend to wonder about that. We tend to wonder how this will affect us, and in what way will this affect us, and, and what does it do uh, to our future? But here's a question I want us to think about this morning is, do we ponder what the long-term effects of our redemption should be? And I'm not talking now all the way into eternity, but instead, as his redeemed, how should that change our life and for how long and in what way should that affect us or cause us or change us? Uh, What does it do to our life? I read recently a story that helps illustrate what the long-term effect of our redemption should be and how our salvation should have drastically changed our behavior. And the story was of an engineer uh, in the early 1900s. He was on a three-story tall scaffolding, tripped, and fell. It was a fall that should have been fatal if he would have hit the ground, but as he fell, one of the laborers on the bottom level looked up and realized that this engineer was going to hit him square. He's standing where this engineer was going to impact. And instead of jumping out of the way, he braced himself for the hit, took the brunt of the fall. The engineer had some bruising. The man that was hit fractured almost every bone in his body. After healing up, the laborer was severely disabled. And so later, years later, a a reporter comes by to the laborer and asks him, how the engineer treats him since the accident. His reply was this, the engineer gave me half of all he owns, including a share of his business. He is constantly concerned about my needs and never lets me want for anything. Almost every day, he gives me some token of thanks or remembrance. Years after this laborer took the impact of his fall, MacArthur notes regarding the story, oftentimes believers, unlike the grateful engineer in the story, forget that on Calvary, there was a substitute who caught the full impact of their sinful weight and rescued them as they hurtled toward an eternity in hell. You see, Christ died for us, redeeming us from certain eternal death and punishment, a sacrifice that warrants, and this is what sometimes as Christians we forget, That sacrifice, our salvation, our redemption warrants our deepest gratitude and calls for constant love beyond the norm. It calls for a love that should not be and is not humanly possible. It's a love that should change everything about our behavior and life. And in the manifestation of that love toward our Savior, we're given a distinct command to love all those he has redeemed, to love the church as part of our love for him, as part of the manifestation of the complete changed character in life. We can talk about loving God, but we can definitely show that we love God by how we love his children. You see, at salvation, we were enabled to love God's children. That's something as a believer that you are capable of. 
You may look at me and say, Kenny, that's just not my personality. I understand the idea of it being not your personality. Uh, just to make another Wizard of Oz reference, and I, I said to somebody, I said, I find the movie boring, and I guess that's not something you're supposed to say, but uh, I find the movie extremely boring. But either way, if I'm picking one of the characters in The Wizard of Oz, I'm the Tin Man, I'm the heartless person. I, I'm, I'm not your lovey-dovey type of personality, and so when you talk about this idea of love, I think that's probably for somebody else in the church. That's not who I am. That's not how God made me. See the excuses we can make? But as a believer, we've been enabled to love the church, a love that is beyond human capacity. And so in response to our great salvation, Peter is calling for growth among the churches. He's calling us to grow in our loving and then in our leaving and then in our longing. And he begins this all by prodding us to grow in loving. If you look at verse 22, it says, seeing you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren. That's a statement of fact that he's giving. He says, see that you love one another with a pure heart fervently. So Peter is still talking about salvation and its results, but he shifted the conversation here from a vertical look to a more horizontal viewpoint. He's looking at the horizontal components of faith, how we should look at and interact with the church, how we should behave as the church, And he begins with a connection followed by the call. Now, the first part of 22 is that connection. Peter reminds them, he connects them to what they have believed. That's that word obey. This is what you've done. And how that has enabled them to have a brother love. And that word Philadelphia, that's where Philadelphia gets its name, city of brotherly love. But it's not just a brotherly love. It's a brother love. It's a family type of Love, sibling love for the church is a seeing you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren. Our new life in Christ is lived in a community setting. So when you get people that want to isolate and pull away, Peter's telling you, no, you're involved in the body of Christ. You're to be fellowshipping. We're commanded in scripture to do that. And so our new life in Christ is, is lived out amongst God's children And there is an assumed manifestation of mutual affection, of family love, that we as a church will manifest because we are members of God's family. And don't miss that, and I'll highlight it later. Peter starts out with an assumed brotherly love, that you will love each other with a sibling love, and that should come as a natural result of being saved. It's not a natural love, but it is a natural result. Now, The expression have purified speaks of moral purification. It is looking back to a change in their will at salvation. And as one writer notes, the term expresses the moral purity demanded in the life and character of those who have been brought into a personal relationship with the holy God. That is a look back at salvation and what has been done. What has happened at salvation? You have been cleansed. But the way it's used and worded in Greek, it still carries a present result. So you have been cleansed and you still are clean, is what he's saying. All being connected by the statement, obeying the truth through the Spirit, which is just another and more fuller way of expressing their faith. It is obedience to the gospel through the working of the Holy Spirit, and it results in a love for the church because they now are brothers and sisters in Christ. That is the connection Peter is making. 
and I said it before and I'm saying it again, and I do this on purpose, understand that brother love is assumed to be present in these churches. Because we haven't reached the command of love. He hasn't commanded them to grow in love yet. This first portion says, you've been cleansed and are clean through the belief in the gospel, through the Holy Spirit's prompting, and that now you are loving in an unfeigned and unfaked love. You are displaying to the church brother love. Peter assumes that at a minimum, as Christians, or automatically as Christians, will love the church in a brother love. And I put a little question here. I wonder if the same assumption could be made of the church today. Could Peter write under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that we have a brother love in our church? It's almost automatic because we're redeemed. We manifest a brother love. And I want you to grasp a little bit because sometimes we read through First Peter and we see these calls to grow and we think that this church isn't growing or that it's an immature church or it's a weak church. And I want you to recognize something. They are already assumed. It's just already Peter knows that they're giving a brother love and that it's not some fake pretense type of love. It's unfeigned. It's not fabricated. They didn't walk in and say, I'm so glad to see you with the plastered on smile that everyone knows is fake. I would encourage us to come to church and show a real smile and to truly love in a sibling-type relationship. We love the church. Why do we love the church? Because they are our family in Christ. Right? You have to love your siblings. Have you ever told your kids you have to love your brother and sister? You may not like them, but you better love them. Right? I'm not saying that everyone in church is your personality, but they're your family. And you love them because they're your family. Now, understand this. Peter has set up an a idea of reminding. He's connected them to who they are. This is what you're doing. You're you're, you're redeemed, you're cleansed, and you're clean, and you are loving in a brotherly love. And then he he expands on the topic of love on that connection and says, I want to see your brother love grow to a decided love. And we don't see in the English language, but we go from a brother love, a Philadelphia, Philadelphia type love, philo, to an agape love. That's the word that's used there. Uh, Those words are not completely different in Greek. I don't want to pretend that there's not connection. There is great connection between those words. So it's not like, well, I only can show a brother love. That's useless love. No, that that is love in its real truest sense. Uh, But in the New Testament, between that philo love and agape love, there is a distinct emphasis. Brother love has more of an emotional touch to it. The second reference to love made by Peter, that agape love, does not make prominent the emotional aspect of love. Instead, it speaks of a love of full intelligence and understanding coupled with corresponding purpose. And that's why I call it a decided love, a love that takes place regardless of your emotions. So now I walk in the church and I really don't want to see X, Y, or Z. I don't really want to interact with anyone. I don't feel it today, right? You ever have those moments? You don't feel it? And Peter is saying, I don't care if you don't feel it. Let's remove the emotional aspect. And I want you to walk and engage with your family in a decided love. I want you to grow to the point that no matter what's going on in life and no matter how irritating the person is next to you, And remember, you're being irritating as well, so they have a hard time loving you. 
that you're supposed to decide to love them. It's supposed to be something that's already done. It's, it's what you're going to do. It's a love that desires and seeks the good of the loved one, even at the expense of self. I think of it this way. It's deciding to love irregardless of how I feel that day. No matter how irritable I feel, now how unloving I feel, that type of love that we're supposed to grow to, and by the way, are capable of, is deciding I will love no matter how bad life is for me or how I feel about it. See, Peter connects the church to their purification and obedience to the truth, connects them to their brother love, and then commands growth. You realize he just told them you're doing a great job, but you need to do better. You're doing great, but you need to be growing. Peter wants and actually is commanding that the church grow in love to the point that they connect their will to it. They decide to love regardless of the emotions that may or may not be attached to it. And I add in parentheses or to a certain person. What we need to know is that Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, believed that Christian love can be commanded. Now, if Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, can tell us grow in love or grow in a decided love, if he can make that command, then you have to make this very important assumption. It's something we're able in Christ to do. If Peter, under under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is going to command us to do something that would be impossible, well, that would not make God even remotely fair. But what the reality is, is that we are able in Christ to do this. We're enabled at salvation to display a brother love to the church, and we are enabled to grow to display a God love, a growing, decided love. And I put in parentheses as I'm reading through my notes, no excuses. If you've been in church long enough, you've heard someone complain about the church. You've heard them complain about people being so mean and nasty and ugly and not nice. And, did, and Peter's having none of that. There's nothing about the people in church that prevents you from loving them. Nothing at all. That's what Peter's statement is. You have no excuse. The expectation is that you as a family member would love them because they're family, but that you will overcome any emotion you have, any personality you have, and you will decide to love them. There are no excuses. What we need to note is that love is to come from a fervent, pure heart. I want you to love how God does that. I want you to do this, and I want you to have the right attitude about it. I want you to have the right perspective about it. We don't come to him with a begrudging heart. A begrudging heart is not a fervent, pure heart. It's a begrudging heart. Now, this is not depicting emotions, but instead emphasizing that our love flows from the core of who we are as believers. If you are going to love in a decided way, it must be connected to Christ. You are unable to do that on your own. The world can love in its various formats, but it cannot display a decided love because that decided love for the church is capable because we are believers, because we have the Holy Spirit living within us. As one writer notes, the term does not refer to the emotional warmth, but to the intensity of Christian love. It's a decision that doesn't waver. It is an action you will take. And then what we need to note is that this love is commanded to be reciprocal, love one another. See, it's easy to accuse the church of being unloving. That church is not loving. 
that church is not friendly in us. It's easy to go to passages like this and say, look, you're supposed to be loving church. And, and look, I'm obviously standing up here and we're preaching and Peter's talking and he's telling the church, I want you to grow in love. But Peter wants you to understand that as you state that, when you walk in to any local church and you say, not loving enough, you are condemning yourself for not living up to God's call to grow in love. Your accusations, as people always say, as you point out to the church, you're pointing back at yourself. And Peter leaves no room for you to use this as a weapon to beat the church up. It's not a weapon we use to shoot at our fellow believers. I don't look out and say to this person, oh, you're not loving enough, shot you. You you need to be loving. See what Peter says? Be loving. Yeah, but Peter's also telling you to be loving, and he leaves you no excuse for not being loving. It's an exhortation, and understand where Peter's talking to the church. As those believers sat and listened to this, they weren't looking around at unloving people. They were supposed to be looking at themselves and saying, do I have a decided love? Am I growing? See, because his exhortation is to grow in our own love for the church. The call is not to glare at your neighbor. The call is to look at your heart because you're to grow in a decided love. Now, Peter understands that this is no casual request, that this is no flippant thing, that this is no easy thing to have to be done. It's no easy endeavor, yet he feels fully authorized to make the demand. And he tells us why in the explanation. That's what 23 and 25 are. Being, in other words, you need to love with a decided love. Love one another with, a, with an agape, with a godlike love. You need to do that, and this is why you need to do that. Because being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth off. And we know that, right? Grass dies, flowers die. If they didn't, my family would be out of business. So, but the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. Why can and should you love with an unearthly, godly love, a love that this world cannot explain? The world doesn't understand a love that sacrifices everything. And I'm not talking, oh, I love this person so much I'd jump in front of a train for them. I would, I would die for them. So it's still not the decided only for them love, no matter what the emotions are. How is that possible? And, and Peter says, because you're redeemed with the imperishable, redeemed by the living and abiding word of God, something that demands response. And what we need to note is that the Word of God is unlike what we see here. Our glory, our thoughts on things do not endure forever. You want to realize that? Go to the smartest person 100 years ago. Even go to the philosophers that they quote in all their psychology classes, and they dive in and they swirls all around. The fact is, even their thoughts were fragile and broken, and the world is always shoring up the thought to make it work. Uh, go to the science of 100 years ago, when they were anti-God, well, they're still anti-God, but you just take the anti-God sentiment from 100 years ago, and it's completely in shambles. They're constantly rebuilding their thoughts. Everything the world does needs tweaking I recently read a book. It was a Christian book on reaching the lost, on how to reach the unchurched. It was a book that's full of stats and surveys, which I find fascinating. But here's what fascinated me more than anything else. 
all the stats were pointing to the time I'm living right now. It was all looking forward and making predictions about our world today, what 2022 would look like, not specifically that year, but (laughs) pushing forward. Here's what's fascinating. Their conclusions didn't all line up. (coughs) It's explainable, right? The book's written in 2004, but regardless of all their work, it doesn't perfectly stand up to time and change. Because the world they predicted is not what the world looks like. Whatever we write doesn't necessarily stand up, but God's word does stand up. It's never changed. It's been the same. It's the gospel. And by the way, that gospel message is from the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament. God has never changed his mind. He's never had a change of focus. Immutable is who God is. Unchanging, he's always had this purpose lined up. What we need to realize is that God's word remains and contains the gospel, the good news that speaks of our Savior's redemption. It is his word and it bears fruit. Isaiah 55, 10 through 11 says this, For as the rain cometh down and the snow from heaven, and return not thither, but watereth the earth, and maketh it bring forth in bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my words be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. In other words, God's word will go out as the imperishable seed, and it will do what God wants it to do. It will not go away. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrows and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. God's word is alive and it brings life. The work that is accomplished, the fact that it's living, abiding, and is the bearer of the good news that we have a redeeming God, a Savior that died for us, is a compelling reason to love the brethren. I want you to see what Peter's connecting to. Love the church with God's type of love because you have been redeemed with something that's never going away. It is the truth, and it's been from the foundation or before the foundation of the world all the way into affinity. Nothing's going to change, and God says, love the church the way I love the church. We were redeemed not with what perishes, not what is of this life and what fades away, but instead with the imperishable, unchanging word of God. That changes how we act toward our heavenly Father's children. See, when you look at the church, you got to stop seeing personalities that maybe you don't relate to. Oh, I like to fish. They don't like to fish. I like to hunt. They don't like to hunt. I like football. They like soccer. They do this, I do that. And we get caught up in our own little world and you've got to start walking in the church and you've got to look around. You've got to say, I see my father's children here. I see the redeemed here. And that's supposed to change our behavior. And here's what's really critical. As it changes our behavior, how we act to the church, it changes how the world perceives our Savior. John 13, 35, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one to another. You see, our love links to the proclamation of the gospel. It's not just something God wants us to do because we're in boot camp, and here we have to run through our boot camp of loving so that we can maybe get to heaven because we loved enough. See, that's what we do, right? We're works-oriented. But instead, you recognize that as you love the church the way God loved the church, as you see them as God sees them, and then that becomes a testimony to the world around you. And so your love 
is linked to the proclamation of the gospel. It's born from the incorruptible word, which is the good news preached to us, and which we then proclaim to the world, highlighted, and I put the word marketed, by our love one to another. Right? You read a book. I don't know if you ever do this, but if you're going to underline in a book, then you know where to go back to. I write in my books now all the time. If I'm reading a commentary, I have a pencil in hand. I write notes, scribble in it, or I highlight. I'm marking it so it's noticeable. And God says, I'm going to highlight the gospel with your love. So here's the question. Are we loving as God commands? And then a second question tied to that. Are you willing to acknowledge that your lack of love equals a tainted proclamation of God's truth, the truth by which you were redeemed? See, because it's easy to say, yeah, I'm not as loving as I should be, and we get casual and we think we need to grow in love. But Peter has tied all of this to this word of God, that that word of truth that was preached to you, the gospel. And then we read in, in the gospels about how our love for another highlights what Christ has done. And so we have to acknowledge that when we lack love, if we don't grow in love, then we are, in essence, unhighlighting, if that makes sense. We're obscuring the gospel instead of bringing light to it. The fact is, lack of love does not manifest what new life in Christ is supposed to be. We are to be characterized as loving the church in a godly, unexplainable way. And when we don't love, it paints a deceptive picture to the lost world around us. So in light of that incorruptible seed, Peter's going to continue on. Oftentimes our chapter breaks in Scripture aren't necessarily where the thought breaks off. It just happens to be where the guy broke the chapter off. And that's one of those cases here because it all flows together now. The incorruptible seed and its life-altering gospel-proclaiming activity and its call, the command for a growing love and a changed behavior, it makes sense that the next call is to grow in leaving. And that's First Peter 2, 2 and 1. And I'm going to highlight this in my Bible. Yours might say so or therefore. It says wherefore, which is connecting you back. Because of laying aside, because of everything we just talked about, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speaking. So grow in leaving. Peter immediately pushes forward with the next call, and it's a call that commands change. Peter wants them to eliminate sins, sins that contradict a sincere love, really sins that destroy a sincere love, sins that will inhibit any sustained longing for God's word, which is the next growth to be discussed. So as Peter is tying into our great salvation and the results, the long-term effects we should see and how that should horizontally play out, he's saying, one, you need to be loving the church in a way that God loves the church, a decided love. And then he says, you got to get rid of some things. You got to deal with your sin. So he says this, set aside malice. Speaking of general evil and wickedness, uh, we have in our court system right to do something with malintent speaks of a desire to harm someone. You did this to hurt someone. And so Peter starts off saying, get rid of the malice, which has two connotations. Get rid of all evil in a general way, but also get rid of this attitude that you want to hurt people. I've watched people as they maybe exit church or break friendship with people and they do so with malice. 
their intent is to harm someone. Well, right away, you're looking at someone who contradicts God's love to the church and cannot be longing for God's word, even if they pretend to be so, because this is going to become something that's going to inhibit that. Set aside that attitude of hurting others. Guile, which is this idea of deceit, and the concept in greed is of baiting a hook, really, of putting the bait on to go fishing. Um, It is treachery. It's trickery is the idea. But think of it that way. You're, you're trying to get someone to bite onto something, but you put something appealing on the hook, right? So it's not going to be this decidedly wicked conversation. It's going to be tricky conversation. It's going to be slippery. Then it says hypocrisy, which you can just put the word fakeness there. It's the idea of spiritual insincerity and pretense. Hypocrisy spoke to actors on a stage who would put a mask in front of it and play a character, right? So a hypocrite is an actor. And so you need to set aside your acting, your fake. I'll tell you this. I see people who are hypocrites in the faith. They put a pretense on. They walk into church. And I'm not saying you come into church and you air all your dirty laundry, okay? We're not your priest. But the idea is this. You don't fake it. And I see people fake it. And you know what's behind the mask? Death. Nothingness. Destruction. Why? They're hypocrites. They're faking it. They're acting like everything is right. And then it says the word envies, which is resentment of other people's blessings. You have something I don't have. I have something I don't want. You don't have it, right? As I or you walk through a trial and you look around, you say, well, that person's not walking through the trial. It's not fair. Why do they have this good life? And why do I have this tough life? Why do they put money in this stock? And I put money in the one that went under. You see what happens with envies? And you, you don't just say, I wish I had, because let's be honest, no one's saying, I wish I would have invested in the, in the dead dog. Uh, we want the winning horse, right? Every time. There's not, that's not envy. But when you start looking at the person who has some blessing poured into their life from God, and you start saying, you resent that because you have to have it. What does it result in? Bitterness, grudges, and conflict. The other word you can use is hatred. You start hating the person who has what you don't have. That's envies. And then evil speaking, this is the one that we, we engage in so quickly. And the, and the word there, it means slander. It is the whispering and backbiting that sadly permeate the body of Christ. It is that destructive, all too often juicy gossip and lies whose purpose is to undermine and destroy. And Peter makes bluntly clear that these actions and attitudes do not belong in the church. Get rid of them. You have the living word of God. It brings life, he says, basically, because a seed continues. It doesn't corrupt. It's always bearing life and bearing fruit. And he says, get rid of this death that's there. It doesn't belong in the church at all. They're not to be entertained by it. I put in parentheses, it's good that you don't want to be around that. If you've ever been around someone who slanders and you feel icky about it, that's a good feeling. That's the Holy Spirit telling you this person's wrong and off. It's good that you remove yourself from evil speaking and slander. Remove yourself from those who talk like that. That's actually the right move to make. That's the good move to make. You move away from that. They're not to be tasted. But isn't gossip gossip juicy, right? Like, I just want to know just to know what's going on. It's just good to know. And, And Peter says it's not good to know. Leave it. 
Why is that? Because they will eradicate any true love for God's people. These things will dry up love, will kill it, will, will slaughter it, will execute it. And those things will suffocate any longing for God's word. If you have evil speaking, if you have envies, if you have malice, if you have hypocrisy, and I'm being honest with you, if you come and pretend in this Christian faith, I guarantee you, you are not reading God's word. You're not diving into it. You don't have a desire for it. And you can, if you're honest with yourself, you'll know it because there won't be a pull to it. Why? Because these things will suffocate any longing for God's word and they will eradicate any true love for God's people. So think with me for a moment. Have you savored those things? Have you had a sampling of them? Have you tasted them? And then even deeper, have you propagated them? And, and the call that Peter says is run from that. Make immediate changes when you see it and dil diligently strive to eradicate it. And the reason why was explained in the first word. Wherefore so, therefore, it is the explanation and it's quite simple. Because of the abiding word of God, because of that living seed in your soul, you must and should eliminate sin. And that elimination of sin, that attack on sin, that active pursuit of that sin to get rid of it, to leave nothing behind, to clean it completely up, that, that passion bears a continually growing fruit because it allows us to grow in longing. This is 1 Peter 2, 2-3. As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby, if so be, or because you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. I remember when, when Heather and I would have a baby in the hospital, uh, Landon was the first one, and it was a struggle to get him to eat. And I remember the inordinate amount, which is not inordinate because when your baby won't eat, you're worried to death, especially on the first one. Um, after that, you're like, yeah, whatever, they'll eat. But first one, you're concerned. And uh, I remember how involved all the nurses were on this. This was a huge deal because babies are supposed to eat and they need to eat. If they don't eat, they, they don't make it. And so you are driven to figure this out because babies typically demand food. And when they're not able to eat, they just continually cry. And I see that, right? If you want to see that, go to the nursery and see. I don't, I'm saying nursery workers better not do this. But if they took the bottle away from the babies, we would just have crying that we would ultimately end up hearing, right? Because babies demand it. What? They're zeroed in on getting their milk. They have to have it. There's no rattle, there's no TV, there's nothing that distracts a hungry baby from getting food. And, and Peter is tying us in to that type of focus in our life. As we examine the long-term effects of redemption, things we should see from being saved, our desire for the word is critical, and that becomes the next focused call. And it's a call that actually acknowledges need. So many people I talk to that don't have a longing for God's word and claim Christ, don't think they need it. That's ultimately what they're saying. I don't need to eat. I don't need this. What we need to note is that we as believers need God's word like a baby needs milk. It's not referring to, because you'll go to Hebrews and it says you want to desire the meat and not the milk. It's not talking about level of teaching here. The whole point that Peter's making is about desire. And actually he goes on purpose. He doesn't just use the word for baby. He actually uses a word that signifies newborn baby. That's why it's translated that way. He goes very young on purpose because all they think about is getting 
fed. And Peter is working to communicate the extent of that desire with his illustration. And what it is, is this. It must be a relentless and focused because life depends on it. How are you supposed to long for God's word? With a pursuit that cannot be distracted. Like a baby will pursue milk, you are to pursue God's word with that zeroed in focus. Nothing sways you from that pursuit. It is a desire that's insatiable, reoccurring through all of our life. We are to desire God's word. There's no season in life. If you look at season, well, this season in life, I know God's word, so I don't long for it. Well, then you have a problem because through all of life, there is to be a longing. And we need to note this, this desire centers on the sincere milk. It's fixated on scripture. Too many Christians desire their best life now or desire to read how to be a better you. I'm not talking about that garbage. I'm talking about the sincere milk of the word. You're supposed to long for God's word, not some spin on it, not some talk on it, not something that makes you feel better. You're to long for his word. Those things that we just mentioned are not the sincere milk of the word. Only the Bible is a sincere milk of the word. So I put as a question, how would you rate your longing for scripture? How would you rate your desire to know more and more in a constant way about your Redeemer, about your Lord and Savior? Put another way, do you have a deep, continuous longing for the word of truth? And if you do not, what needs to change? Well, if you jump up to those sins before and you have a tendency to be slanderer or a gossiper, then you know what needs to change. Here's the second question on change. How quickly are you going to go about changing it? Because oftentimes we can know we need to make a change. Something's inhibiting our longing for the word. And what do we do? We stubbornly persist in doing what we know inhibits us from longing for the word. I can't explain that. I see it in my own life. It crops up. And I'm like, I know exactly what I need to do. Why don't I do that? Because I have, a, I have an issue. I have a sin that needs to be confessed and turned away from. How quickly are you going to change when you don't see the longing? Are you going to walk out of here and say, Kenny's crazy? Whatever. Evaluate your life. Do you long for his word? Because Peter is not saying that we should long for the word because he wants to give us busy work. Instead, there is a purpose. He wants them and us to pursue growth, that she may grow thereby. See, a strong desire for the word, a longing that is pursued, will affect or cause growth in us. It's going to move us. As MacArthur notes, Peter's exhortation for believers to grow through the word strongly implies the necessity of discontentment with the present condition of spiritual development. That's a long way of saying you're never satisfied with what you know and how you've experienced Christ. You keep going to his word to read more and read more. We're to constantly be striving to grow. If you read Paul's letters, you're going to see it woven throughout what he writes, especially in Philippians. He goes into depth about that longing, about throwing aside everything else and constantly wanting to grow in the word. You read the other apostles' writings under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and you see the same thing, to constantly be striving for his word, to know more, to grow more. And that burning desire to grow is further highlighted in verse 3, Uh, which gives us another explanation. Here's another reason why we should be constantly hungering. Peter says, If so be, ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious. 
The psalmist calls in Psalm 34, 8, which is what Peter is talking about here, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And what Peter is saying is, you've tasted that the Lord is good. As believers, we have tasted of his goodness in the most magnificent way. All of scripture and God's plan is pointed to this. We are the beneficiaries of seeing it completed out to this extent, to have seen the Savior. We were rescued from destruction and death, and that should feed the desire to know more of his goodness through his word. Peter closes his whole push on longing for the word by reminding them that they're saved. And he's saying, what's the long-term effects of salvation? He said, well, it should be a longing to know more about your Savior. You should never be satisfied with what you know about God, ever. You cannot and should not be able to be satisfied. You should be constantly longing for him. And you find him in his word. He's communicated through all the dispensations what he wants us to know. So why is our desire, our longing for him and to know him so lacking? Why is it missing? Because let's be honest, we're sitting here and if we're really fair, we don't long like Peter's talked about. It's not always there. As one commentator notes, just how keen is your appetite? That can be a searching personal question, maybe an index of your Christian health. How healthy are you as a believer? How much longing do you have for God's word? And that will answer that question. So examine your longing to know him more, to read his word, to desire as babies do their milk, his incorruptible seed, which is speaking of the Bible, and then give yourself an honest grade of one to 10 on how healthy your spiritual life really is. Be honest with yourself. Rate it. Because that's going to tell us a lot about where we are in our walk with Christ. Peter conceives of Christian life not as an instant and easily attained experience, but as a lifelong process of growth. What does it mean to be a believer? It means you're growing all the way until you reach eternity. The long-term effects of redemption should lead to a constant growth and change in and on our lives. So I want to close by asking this. Are you growing? Growing in love, growing in your elimination of sin, growing in your desire for his word so that you can know more of his abundant grace and mercy. You're growing to know more of his goodness. So that's the end question on long-term effects of redemption. Are you growing? Let's pray. If I thank for this opportunity we have to come together to study your word. As Peter is so eloquently doing, he's he's walking us through first our great salvation, and then we've looked at the implications it has for eternity. We got to see how majestic your plan was, how we were not an afterthought. And then he's walked us through our horizontal relationship to life here on earth, and he's talked with us and shown us what is the long-term life effects of redemption need to be. And he he showed us that we should be, uh, as your children, loving loving the way you love in a decided way. And he showed us that we should be passionate about leaving sin, eliminating sin, not coddling it, not excusing it, not permitting it because it's who we are, that's how we act, but instead looking at this in a very serious way and saying, I want to address my attitude. I want to eradicate what's wrong. And then closing out with a look at how much longing we have for your word tied to your goodness. 
As believers, we should never be satisfied with what we know about our Lord and Savior, but instead constantly seeking uh, to see more of your goodness. Why? Because we've tasted and seen of your great mercy and your great grace. And that should drive us to see and know more. You are an infinite God. We can never exhaust who you are. And as believers, give us a passion uh, to long for your word. And when we see that lacking, let it be the red flag in our life that drives us to go back and maybe eliminate sin that's there, maybe drives us to go back uh, to adjust our attitude towards the church. Let that be the warning sign that we're off in some way, shape, or form. But give us, Lord, a great desire for you and your word that we may grow thereby. In your precious and holy name, amen.